Welcome back to the Stories from Southwest Virginia podcast. Southwest Virginia is a location as unique as its people, and we pride ourselves on rich cultural heritage, food, music, and the arts. Stories from Southwest Virginia tells the stories of this amazing region that we live in. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode. First of all, you know, welcome. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your day to join me today and talk about some of Southwest Virginia's art history. Um, but if you wouldn't mind just to introduce yourself and uh, yeah, we'll see what all we can learn today. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Morgan Gilbert and I'm the director of the arts at Southwest Virginia Community College. Um, and I have a history of research in Appalachian craft and culture. Uh, and I love not only visual arts, but all of the arts in Southwest Virginia. Um, I am also a visual artist myself um, that I work in quilting and fiber arts um, and linking the connections of that from uh, our traditions of Appalachia into uh, contemporary art making and fun art. That's awesome that, that like, not only do you like study it and you know a lot about it, but you're also involving yourself with like a hands-on experience of these pieces. So, you know, and that's kind of where, where I found out about you is I was looking around and I was like, I need somebody to kind of help me figure out the art history. Like where did our inspirations come from? How did it begin? Because what I'm ultimately trying to do is figure out all the different things that make Southwest Virginia what it is, our arts, our crafts, our food, our people. Like, where did all this come from? Where did it originate? So I guess if we want to see where we're at now, we got to dive back to where it began. So if you wouldn't mind uh, just giving us some information about like Appalachian art history. Yeah. And so, um, of course, I'm going to link this into my own personal experience because that's all what it's about. It's creating those connections for each person um, that uh, almost 200 years ago, my family immigrated from um, Ireland and Scotland and they got to Castlewood, Copper Creek area, and they said they were on their way to the Midwest, to Indiana. They said it cannot be any prettier out there. This looks like home to them because of the mountains here uh, reflect the mountains there. Um, and they said, we're going to just stay right here. Um, and so uh, my whole family has a history of farming um, on both sides of my family. Uh, my family still works in farming. Um, and so, of course, I grew up in the midst of an Appalachian tobacco farm. Um, and we are now transforming it into hemp growing. So that's another fun connection of the past and the present, how things can progress, um, that you can use tobacco uh, equipment that was used hundreds of years ago. Now we are creating it into hemp growing. Um, but the the whole basis of art in Appalachia uh, is the idea of, of course, poverty, making do with what you got. Um, but it's also an idea of um, self-reliance and independence, um, that we are a people that uh, we do what we got to do. And uh, you take what you got and you make what you can get out of it. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's boring. Um, so just use quilting, for example, which of course is my favorite, um, that women in Appalachia would have clothes, um, that they make for their family. 
when those clothes wear out, uh, you got to find another life for them. So you take them and you cut them up and you use them to make a quilt. Um, and then for me, I think that that layering is really interesting. And so I love the idea of taking that necessity to another level. Um, so what other life can that live? Um, that we've got that, that idea of um, layers of a life of an object and using things as many times as we possibly can um, until it's dust, it's fallen apart to nothing. I mean, I think that is the, the foundation of what Appalachian art is about. Um, that it's the art of necessity, um, but it's taking that necessity and building into something that creates a narrative of our lives um, and, and of what our lives here in the mountains in Appalachia mean. That's actually really fascinating. Like, I, I actually never knew that that was kind of why quilts were made. I thought it was more of like just because just that's what you had. I didn't know that it was like <laughs> used originally for the repurposing of, of like old fabrics and stuff. So that's, that's really cool to learn that. And it, it kind of shows, you know, <clears throat> I've, I've heard just so many stories about this, even from my grandparents when they were kids, uh, you know, living in one bedroom cabins and, and living here in the mountains and having farms is they were always very innovative with how they utilized everything, even like potato sacks. When they were done, they would still utilize those sacks for, for other stuff, whether they made clothing out of it or they used it for storage. So I always think that's really cool to hear these stories about the people of Appalachia and how they utilize their resources so well. Yeah, I love the potato sack stories. And that was a thing in this area that um, the feed sacks, so when you bought feed for your animals, um, you would then take that fabric and turn it into something new. That's the layers like I was talking about. Um, and the feed companies called on to the fact that um, women were using those fabrics because uh, you, you can't just run to Walmart, run to the fabric store and buy fabric. It was a big ordeal to go get fabric or you'd have to order it in. It takes weeks to get to you. Um, and so they started printing uh, floral prints on the feed sacks. And so a lot of the quilts that you see, if you go to antique stores, if you go to quilt museums in this area, um, you, can, you can start to recognize those floral prints that were used in the feed sacks, um, that were feed sacks, then turned into clothes, then turned into a quilt. That is wild. I, I had no idea. I would never imagine that they would took, like, and put patterns on feed sacks for that purpose. But that's actually, it's very clever. Uh, from the manufacturer side of things too, yeah. and um, that that's awesome. So you you were saying that you know your family was was Irish and maybe a little bit of Scottish in there as well. Yeah, uh, I'm seeing that. It seems like this area was very full of of the Scots Irish, and um, I know researching my own family, it, it tends to lean a little bit more towards the Scottish side, and then have some Irish ties in there. So, uh, but it's it's interesting to look back and and see how all these different cultures came together and, and made up the region the way that they did. Yeah. And our folklore um, is something that I've really been interested in lately um, of how that we tell the tales of our past culture and how our culture is being created. Um, so I've been studying lately um, the uh, Psalms chanting. So I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it was a way for, I think they've sometimes been dubbed granny witches, um, but the women of Appalachia, um, who we didn't necessarily always have um, readily 
uh, available access to doctors, to hospitals, to midwives. And so the women would um, create these things that would help supplement and help replace, um, sometimes spiritual, sometimes um, actual implementation. Uh, and so Psalms chanting is something that I'm really excited about right now is they would take the Psalms of the Bible and they would create different rituals while repeating or chanting uh, these the different psalms. Um, and so you'd have one for when you needed the crops to grow and one for childbirth and one for um, whatever you were needing at that time um, to create that ritual around um, the things that you needed in life to help um, solve those problems. Uh, and And a lot of those were based on the uh, European spiritual practices, especially those of uh, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, um, and then mixed in with the cultural practices of the Cherokee Indians. Um, so one of my favorite parts of Southwest Virginia art history is a place called Paintlick. Have you ever heard of that? That name sounds very familiar. I couldn't tell you where it is, but. Okay, so it is, um, if you go to Claypool Hill, um, okay. It is the mountain right behind Claypool Hill, and this is a um, one of the oldest pictographs in the United States that's still um, available to see that hasn't deteriorated, um, and it's on its way to deterioration. Um, in fact, the Smithsonian came a few years ago and took pictures of it and recorded um, the information on it because they said that um, it was too far past restoration point. Um, and too remote um, to, to restore. Uh, but I've been lucky enough, it's on private property, so you have to have permission to go see them. Um, but I've gotten to go a couple of times and we took some drones up and got the first and probably only pictures of them straight on because they're 30 foot up on a cliff. Um, but they are um, pictures uh, and symbols like you would think of and seeing in the Southwest region uh, in Arizona, California, um, where they've taken uh, bear fat and uh, bird eggs and pigment from the rocks and they mixed it all together and painted on the walls. Um, wow. And it's a really cool thing that uh, a lot of people don't know exists in this area, but uh, we are one of the only ones on the East Coast that still has one of those around. And I, I'm trying to picture that in my mind of, of what it would look like, because I know you said it's like 30 feet up as far as how the drones to get it straight on. And, and my thinking process was how they got them there, like what kind of effort might have went into actually like creating those. And, and just thinking back around those times, you know, the, the technology we have nowadays things are simple but then it's a whole different world so yeah and and at the bottom of the mountain um was their area for um their gatherings in the summer so all of the uh, indians of this area native americans from this area would gather in the summers um kind of a family reunion uh kind of vibe and, and they would meet there at the bottom um and then we don't know for sure, because obviously it's, there's not been records kept from that far back, but um, it could have been anything from um, a sacred space where uh, they were trying to get as high as possible um, to get close to the gods, for the gods to be able to see what they were trying to say, um, to ensure 
that year that they um, had a good crop, that they had a good hunting ground to to secure, just like the granny witches in the early 1800s and 1900s um, were doing the psalms chanting uh, to ensure the life that they needed to have because in Appalachia, you're an independent. You have to make it happen yourself if you need it to happen. That's really cool, and it, it's neat to see how you know, it started off as like the, these pictures or these paintings, and then it goes to these chants and the, of, of, in these songs and uh, how it just kind of changes throughout the course of time. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with like the different backgrounds and influences that, you know, we discussed. And, uh, and it, it's interesting. I, I, that was a reoccurring theme I'm starting to hear is that, you know, the reason why a lot of people settled here is because it reminded them of home and they were just looking to start their new home. And I, I think that's interesting to think that, you know, Scotland, Ireland is like a world away, even in today's time, it still takes a while to travel there, but yeah. you have those similarities that people can find when they're coming here. So I guess wonder what my thinking is, is, is how these different cultures, like their art pieces, do they, do they each bring their own unique styles of art? And then those kind of intertwine together over time to be what we see today or do they still kind of remain their own separate pieces? Yeah. And, and they, we've definitely, of course, America in general is a melting pot. Um, Appalachia is one of the few areas that has sustained their own culture as long as they have. So they started out um, bringing their culture from the places they came to. Um, but very quickly, we took those influences and melded them all together to create an Appalachian culture and uh, even an Appalachian dialect. Um, the, the way that we talk, the, the art that we make, the literature we write, all of our uh, culture is one of the least deviated cultures in the United States. And that's one of the things that really defines us in Southwest Virginia as special. Um, because we are back in the hollers, um, that things take a little bit longer to change around here, uh, which some people can claim is a bad thing. I claim is a good thing. Um, that uh, the way that we talk is the least deviated um, dialect of any of the American dialects from Old English. So some of the things that we are saying, like ain't, like uh, y'all, those, those dialects, um, if you look back at Shakespeare and how Shakespeare wrote, um, a lot of those are similar. That you, You'll see that uh ain't that null that um some of the ways that we talk um that we haven't deviated from that um as other dialects in the united states have um and our art making is the same way uh that we uh still really hold on to those traditions um and that's something that's rapidly changing right now in the way that we make art um in the last 50 years um, we are starting to gain access to the outside world a little bit more, um, which is a great thing. Uh, and, and that's part of, one, getting people to know about what a cool culture we have here um, and, and the strengths and, and wonderful things we're doing here. Um, and also gives us access to things like travel, um, to globalization, access to food, to um, all these collaborations that we can have. Um, travel is one of my favorite things in life. 
uh, exploring different cultures. Uh, but what does it mean when a um, hundred years ago, an artist uh, learns a craft, they spend their entire life making that craft um, and perfecting it to the best that they can. And then their son or daughter or an apprentice comes in and they learn how to make that craft exactly as I made it. Um, and they may deviate it a little bit to create their own uh, version of it. Um, but, but it's that hand me down one to another to another feel. Um, and now with the access of the internet, um, of, of this globalization that we have, uh, I take influences from artists in Japan, from artists in Brazil, um, and those affect the way that I make art. So I may watch a YouTube video of an artist um, doing watercolors in Brazil, and they're taking influences from their culture. And so that starts to deviate the, the way that I make art um, and, and influences from other places, which, for good or bad, whatever it is, um, that is changing the way that Appalachian craft is made. Um, and, and not even necessarily losing those techniques, um, but just creating more influences in those techniques. Yeah, I can relate to that. I know uh, I'm really avid. My art form is photography and, and I'm always inspired or, or sometimes take it to extreme and try to mimic other art, uh, photographers a little bit too much. But some of my favorite photographers are actually based around the UK. And it's interesting because, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains that we have here, it's, it's, they're really unique in how you can photograph them, just the atmosphere and, and the tones is so much different than say if you went out to Arizona and photographed the desert, like the, the situations, it's, it's hard to explain, but the lighting is, is very intricate with photography. And, mm -hmm. and I don't want to say that this area is easy to photograph. I mean, it is because it's so beautiful everywhere you look, but uh, it's that soft light that goes across that a lot of photographers are, are, are seeking out and everything. And I wonder going tying in with the artwork is I notice you know, I've been doing a lot of traveling across the region, trying to document and photograph a bunch of different places and, and our assets. And I noticed that the dialects change. So one county to the next, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy because as soon as you go across the county line, everybody starts talking completely different. And, and I'm curious if that has anything to do with the, the type of people that were settling to the area and how everybody was like communing together. Because I know you mentioned you know, we, the Scottish, the Irish, we had the Africans, we had Native Americans. And I'm just curious if it maybe had a little bit of something to do with the, the majority of the population from those particular areas. And does the artwork alter also because of those correlations? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, if you use Abingdon as an example, um, Abingdon was a point on the Great Road. Um, which we've got a, a wonderful scholar in Abingdon, Betsy White, who wrote a whole book about the Great Road, um, which was a migration trail from Pennsylvania down. Um, and so then you get a lot of the Dutch and the German influences uh, more in Washington County than, say, where I am here in Russell County. Um, that in Russell County, we got people coming from um, Kentucky and, and North Carolina migrating up. Um, and so obviously, you're going to get slightly different blends of different cultures 
um, even town to town in the same county. Um, if you have an artisan who is really good in what he does, um, for example, we have um, Johnny Hagerman in Tazewell County is a brick carver. Uh, and he is one of only 38 artisan brick carvers in the United States. Uh, and so he is a treasure for this area. Um, and when you start traveling through Tassel County, you start seeing his signs everywhere. But you see these artfully done brick uh, signs. Uh, and then we have several of his sculptures on the campus of Southwest Community College. Um, but you start noticing it and when you're driving down 19 you go oh that's johnny's that's johnny's <laughs> and and that starts building that culture just by seeing that image over and over seeing that technique over and over um you find comfort in it um and then you uh as a young artisan see that as a career path you can do um that there is somebody who is working professionally in Tassel County as a full-time brick sculptor. Yeah, that, that's really cool. And it, it makes me think about this other individual. He is, he kind of works more with like welding. So he does a lot of metal work and things, but he was talking about how he's passing his craft down to his daughter, who's already expressed tons of interest in it. So I, I love it when artisans talk about even today, they're still passing these crafts down to the younger generations. So it kind of like keeps this alive. and. You know, he said that, you know, his grandfather did this and then he passed it to his dad, to him, now to his daughter. So it's and it's fourth generation now. And uh, and I think that's what's really neat is to see that. I think that's part of the reason that all this has lived throughout the years in the Appalachian region is because we have such close ties to our family and, and our and, and just passing down those crafts. Even like uh, my grandmother, when, when I was really little, I would help her you know, break the green beans or shuck the corn and, and always preparing these homemade meals. Like she didn't go to the store and buy the, the easy bake biscuits. She took the flour and made the biscuits. And, and this was like every day because that's what she knew and, and what she enjoyed doing. So, and, and I reflect that to this day, I, I would much rather, you know, make my own meals than go out to fast food or whatever. So it's, it's really cool to see that we have those values still alive and well here in Appalachia. Well, and that's so important for our generation now um, that it's easy when you're young to say, I want to get out of here. There's nothing for me here. Um, but we are the harbingers of our culture. Um, and so I was the same way as you. I learned to crochet when I was three years old from my great grandmother. Um, and then she took that to the next step and taught me to sew and then my grandmother taught me to sew and knit and um that's where i developed that love for it um but just like you were talking about your grandmother's biscuit recipe if you don't have that to this day if you didn't hold on to it then what are you supposed to do when you want to make biscuits well the easy thing to do is go to the store and buy some frozen biscuits but the better thing is to hold on to that recipe uh, and put it out in the world um, and share our culture with the world um, through a blog or a documentary or um, all these wonderful access points that we have uh, in this area and in technology these days to, to hold on to those practices and not um, 
just because it's history, not just because we're supposed to, not just because our families did it, but we take it and we make it our own um, and we tweak it to make it suit our lives now. Um, And I think that's that's really important, even if it's um, a biscuit recipe, if it's a a technique of of making something, um, anything that we make. uh, I have a family pickle recipe uh, that's that's been passed down and and we still make every year in my family. Um, And my Christmas presents last year were um, a laser engraved cutting board with our pickle recipe. Um, because the only recipe that we had was on a little piece of paper that my grandmother scribbled on. It was starting to wear out. Um, It was folded up about a thousand times, and and that wasn't going to be around forever. Um, So taking a moment and and taking a small effort to sustain and and develop these things um, is really important for our generation. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think you know, everybody talks about how their, their cultures and, and their areas are significant and, and every area has their own uniqueness and their own great values. But I really, truly believe that this area, you know, we, we've held on to these values of music and food and, and art and just the culture throughout many generations. And I think that's what makes this place so special. And, and I'm finding out as, as I continue my research and, and, and talking with so many uh, very knowledgeable people is that that's what makes Southwest Virginia what it is. And, and that's the question that I, I started at the beginning of the documentary is, you know, why do I call this place home? Why, why do so many of us call this place home and, and what makes it so special? Um, and I think I'm slowly finding out those answers. So uh, and I, I, I don't want to keep too much of your time today, but if you have anything else that you'd like to mention as far as like the art or, you know, some of your family stories like that, or what you would like to just say to anybody out there um, in regards to Southwest Virginia, uh, please feel free. Yeah, um, I'll just share. Um, so not only do I like to study the history of this area, I like to make art from this area. Um, and so I have been exploring um, the Goodwin Weavers out of uh, Cedar Bluff, Virginia. Um, they were one of the first water-powered weaving companies in the United States. Um, and they worked from the late 1800s to the early 1920s, um, creating woven coverlets in the overshot colonial-style uh, weaving method. Uh, and these are something that you probably have in one of your hope chests, cedar chests, uh, passed down. Uh, this, this past Christmas, I was uh, very officially handed my Goodwin Weavers coverlet that had been passed down through generations of my family um, that people of this area would uh, take wool from their farms and take it to the Goodwin Weavers and uh, trade it for a coverlet. And so you would get a coverlet to take home to use if you gave them your wool. Um, They, in the 1920s, moved to Blowing Rock, um, but the the old mill still stands in Cedar Bluff. uh, And it's a really neat place. Um, And and they also had a mill that uh, did grain and and wheat and things like corn um, that we are getting ready through the college to turn into the Appalachian Arts Center, which is an artisan center um, where you can go buy really high quality local crafts. 
um, as well as an event venue for the college um, to, to help hold on to these special places like that. Um, but I recently took some of these old coverlets um, that were deteriorating that needed a new life and turned them into uh, octor uh, formal gowns and did a Vogue style photo shoot um, with formal dresses made out of these old coverlets and brand new ideas. Um, so, so just to tie together everything we've been talking about is um, my encouragement to the people of Southwest Virginia, people visiting Southwest Virginia, um, is to, to take these old traditions and give them a new life, to make them something new, um, to, to continue what we're doing, that it, it's not old, staunchy, um, historical, boring, poverty-focused, um, that it's a living, breathing thing that, that evolves. Uh, and, and we have to create our own evolution of it or it won't be around anymore. Now, that's wonderful. And, and it's, it's interesting because what, what you're talking about doing, it, it kind of took me back to the old like potato sacks and how they were turning those into clothes and everything gets repurposed. And, and I think that's wonderful. And it's great that you're, you know, carrying on these, these parallels and these traditions and you have all these amazing stories to tell. And, and I appreciate you coming to, help me out on this journey and, and explaining to the world what Southwest Virginia is and, and why we all love calling this place home. 